Welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I accidentally just started the show without doing our intro, so I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> so uh, 508-996-0500. We're going to be joined soon by Brian Glenn Williams of uh, UMass Dartmouth. In fact, I think he's on the line now. So let's go to the, let's go to the VIP line. Uh, hey, Dr. Williams, how you doing? Hey, good, Marcus. How you doing? Good, good. So, um, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. Uh, you've been on with me before. I know you've been on with Jim Phillips before. But for people who don't know you, just um, you know, briefly introduce yourself to the audience. Yes, yeah, so I'm a, a full professor of Islamic history uh, at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Uh, I spent considerable time uh, in Afghanistan uh, working for A for the CIA. Uh, tracking suicide bombers uh, in regional command east, also working for the U.S. military, uh, doing information operations under General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, I've written seven books on these topics, uh, including one that's sort of pertinent here, uh, titled Predators, the CIA's Drone War on Al-Qaeda. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Glenn Williams, uh, professor at uh, UMass Dartmouth, uh, so and foreign policy expert. So uh, recently, the um, Biden administration uh, announced that they had executed and uh, a successful uh, assassination of um, Aman al Zawari, who was uh, bin Laden's second in command uh, when bin Laden, uh, before he was taken out by the U.S. government. Can you uh, just, you know, give your thoughts on, on that, um, that uh, successful uh, assassination and how it will affect al Qaeda's operations going forward? Yeah, well, I think it's actually extraordinary and most heartening for me, uh, having myself, you know, had boots on the ground there and worked with. Uh, indigenous Afghan spy assets, uh, I feared that we, we pulled up stakes and we withdrew the troops uh, from Afghanistan in August uh, 2021, that we would lose these spy networks, that we'd lose our, our finger on the pulse uh, of the terror groups operating in Afghanistan. And once again, you know, Afghanistan is a place you want to have eyes and ears on to monitor. It was the, the springboard for the 9-11 attacks. Uh, so I, I was not too hopeful that we would be able to continue to really wage robust counterterrorism uh, in Afghanistan when we lost not just our, our, our bases there, but we lost our CIA intel gathering uh, stations. Uh, so uh, when we see that the CIA was able to either regenerate or maintain this tremendous uh, intelligence capacity to, to track down uh, this elusive terrorist mastermind. You know, we've been hunting him for, you know, almost 30 years. Right. And not only to strike him down uh, with a drone strike, but to do it with no civilian death. Uh, you know, it speaks to a tremendous uh, a uh, intel capacity, uh, whether it be human, which stands for human intelligence, you know, i.e., spies, or tech uh, technical intelligence, using perhaps uh, NSA or, or drones to track down, uh, say, uh, cell phones and, and geolocate them and find his position. So I, I'm heartened that we've still maintained this capacity to take out a high-ranked terrorist in the heart of downtown Taliban-controlled Kabul, even though we are no longer there. This is called a uh, over-the-horizon strike. And there were skeptics that this, would, this policy would work. Uh, but this seems to have vindicated uh, President Joe Biden and the Pentagon, who told Americans almost a year ago, 
we will still get al-Qaeda or ISIS if they do regenerate as a threat in Afghanistan. Okay, so that's interesting because you know, when I had you on in the immediate aftermath of all of the chaos of Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, you were you were firmly against the withdrawal. But now you're saying um, basically that his decision to withdraw based on um, what just occurred was vindicated by this? Well, you know, to degree, I think his <laughs> statement uh, that we could still uh, extend our power that we still have the capacity to track down and uh, eviscerate al-Qaeda or ISIS terrorists operating in this safe sanctuary, uh, that statement in itself, I think, has been vindicated. We still have this tremendous kill capacity uh, with drones in particular, like the MQ-9 Reaper, which is used in this strike, uh, to kill people in this Central Asian remote country where we have no bases. But in the big scheme of things, uh, I, I don't think his decision... Uh, to withdraw the 2,000 troops from Afghanistan who were almost like the finger in the dike, uh, you know, almost like the Spartans fighting against the Persians, the 300 Spartans against 100,000 uh, Persians. I don't think that decision to draw that very small footprint of uh, enablers or accelerants or force multipliers uh, was a wise call. I think it was done uh, for reasons I understand, you know, war fatigue, uh, it's the longest war in American history. And, uh, of course, Trump is the one who organized this treaty uh, at Doha uh, with his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. So, in many ways, it was Trump's decision, Trump's policy. Uh, and okay. Biden walked into the White House almost like he walked in an IED placed by Trump. Uh, and he fell into the trap and followed through on this treaty to yank these troops out. And uh, that symbolic gesture of pulling just the 2,000 force multipliers uh, who were so vital to maintaining uh, the Afghan National Army and police and the government, uh, pulling those troops out uh, in mid-August of 2021 proved to be catastrophic for Afghan society. And the whole country just collapsed as the Afghan National Army threw down their weapons and refused to fight and gave them over to the Taliban. And we lost the entire country forever. Uh, and only because of these 2,000 troops who we could have maintained there who weren't taking casualties, but they were sort of behind the scenes acting as multipliers, force multipliers. So we're speaking with Dr. Brian Glenn Williams of uh, UMass Dartmouth, a foreign policy expert. So, um, Dr. Williams, uh, you spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. Like you said, you, you've made you made friends over there in uh, in Afghanistan during your time there with with the people that were there. And uh, what do you think their reaction is um, to the recent uh, execution of uh, Amin, um, Amin al Zawari? So, uh, the ones I know, uh, mind you, my my closest tribe I worked with were from a, a Turkish Mongol tribe. Uh, called the Uzbeks. Uh, they live in the north. They're uh, horse-riding warriors. Uh, I wrote a book about my experience living with them uh, called The Last Warlord, The Life and Legend of Dostum, the Afghan warrior who overthrew the Taliban regime. Uh, these Uzbek Mongol warriors who hate Taliban, who come from the Aryan tribe called the Pashtun, uh, they see al-Qaeda and the Taliban as their blood enemies. And in fact, the warlord I lived with, uh, General Dostum, uh, who appears in the movie 12 Strong, uh, based in part on my book, he and his team actually celebrated. I had an email from them uh, thanking America for killing uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who Dostum and his Uzbek warriors actually tried killing 
back in the late 80s. So there's going to be a wide celebration among the anti-Taliban tribes of the Northern Alliance. But there will be some uh, pro-Taliban, uh, pro-Al-Qaeda, uh, Pashtun tribes, you know, the Aryan tribe that forms almost exclusively the Taliban. They will be you know, aggrieved. They will declare badal, which means revenge. Uh, it will be seen as a, a violation of their, their sovereignty. Uh, but in actuality, you know, we made this treaty. Mike Pompeo, Trump's Secretary of Defense of State, made this treaty with the Taliban in Doha back in 2020 that said, hey, we're going to draw our troops, and you have to promise us no al-Qaeda in your country. Well, this strike proves one thing. They broke that treaty, and the Taliban are still proactively harboring al-Qaeda, even right. after we invaded the country in 2001 to destroy that sanctuary. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Flynn-Williams um, of UMass Dartmouth. So, Dr. Williams, you said your book that you wrote recently is, is very pertinent. Uh, it, it's pertinent to um, what just happened with Aman al-Zawari. And uh, the book is titled uh, Predators, the CIA Drone War on Al-Qaeda. Can you just talk a little bit about the pertinence of your, uh, you know, broadly about the pertinence of your book to this, um, to this event? Yeah, well, so, you know, you, you have this unique platform, uh, the MQ-9 Reaper, the most advanced drone in the planet, uh, that was developed uh, to carry heavy munitions. It carries as much munitions almost as, a, as an F-15 manned jet fighter. Uh, and they're crucial to waging over-the-horizon warfare in places like uh, Afghanistan, where we have no troops, or Pakistan, or, or Yemen, or Somalia, uh, Libya. Uh, it's a wonderful tool in that it can fly 1,500 miles. It projects power without projecting vulnerability. You know, so if you shoot the drone down, no pilots die. And it has deadly persistence. You know, it can hover for 48 hours over its target. You can't see it. You know, it's thousands of feet in the sky. Uh, but it can see you with these remarkable high-resolution cameras. Uh, and when it, can, it spots you, you know, it can have facial recognition. Uh, it can track your cell phone and triangulate your position and geolocate it by your voice recognition. Uh, and when it does find you, uh, based upon either tech and, you know, technical intelligence like a, uh, a surveillance from a drone or uh, uh, tracking down your cell phone and locating you, I can fire a mini hell missile, a hellfire missile, I'm sorry, uh, a very small missile, uh, or, or it can be guided by a spy. A spy is in the ground, can guide the drone uh, to a target. And when they do find their target, looks like we probably still do have a spy assets working there on the ground in post-withdrawal Afghanistan. They place small homing beacons, about the size of a, of a lighter, a cigarette lighter. They place these very small homing beacons on the target's car or on his compound, in this case, probably, and that directs the drone you know, from 1,500 miles away, say in Qatar or Kuwait, and it flies over the target, and it knows directly where the target is based on the homing beacon or the triangulation from the cell phone or spies having eyes on the target, and it fires these really small missiles. You know, anti-drone activists uh, complaining that they're killing lots of civilians in a quote-unquote bombing campaign but, but these aren't old-fashioned, dumb gravity bombs that are dropped by planes like Mach 5. They're clumsy. Uh, they miss the targets. These are directed by a pilot and his weapons operator who directs the missile uh, by his side. And they go directly at the target with a laser shooting it. Uh, so they're very, very hard to miss. And they have a small radius of explosion. 
Now, when the Hellfire missile is only about five feet high, when it blows up, it's like a bazooka shell. So it doesn't have a massive blast radius, which kills lots of civilians. The way, say, a 500-pounder bomb or a 1,000-pounder bomb or a 2,000-pounder bomb would do. It's a micro-missile meant to take out a target and not kill innocent civilians as collateral damage in military terms. And in this case, it was tremendously effective. You know, that, that the MQ-9 Reaper flew from probably you know, uh, Kuwait or Qatar, and it got over the target, fired a missile. The missile killed just the target, Ayman al-Zahari, and nobody else. And this missile in particular, a unique one, is called the Ninja Hellfire Missile, in that it has no explosive payload. All it has is six giant knives in the front that come out and chop the target to bits without creating explosions to kill, in this case, his family who were in the house around him and weren't uh, injured. That's pretty fascinating. Um, so what you're saying is, because you said that, you know, you earlier remarked upon your, like, uh, the astonishment that there were no, um, that there were no uh, uh, civilian casualties and often, you know, civilian casualties with respect to drone strikes are, or at least were, a regular occurring thing. I remember Obama himself um, basically rationalizing it to the American people uh, in a speech um, when he was president. And so what's your opinion on, you know, drone strikes as an effective policy when there are civilian casualties? And that's the crux of the matter, Marcus. I'm glad you brought up that that speech uh, and that issue. That you may recall, of course, as you mentioned, that there was a drone blitz launched under Obama mm-hmm. uh, that wiped out Al Qaeda. You know, there's a reason why we have not had another Al Qaeda attack on the U.S. mainland in, in two decades. You know, my students at UMass Dartmouth have never no no recollection of an actual homeland attack by Al Qaeda. That's because Al Qaeda was annihilated, decimated, eviscerated in its tribal sanctuary in Pakistan, and the tool that wiped them out was these drones. They had deadly loitering persistence, great spy networks, and they just hunted down and wiped out Al-Qaeda as we know it. Uh, Zawahiri was one of the, one of the few survivors. Uh, but in the process of killing thousands of, of Taliban and Al-Qaeda uh, in this tribal sanctuary, as you mentioned, there were civilian casualties. Uh, while writing my book, uh, Predators, the CIA's drone war on al-Qaeda, I actually traveled uh, to Pakistan to this targeted remote uh, Taliban al-Qaeda sanctuary uh, where we got bin Laden uh, back in 2011. And my, my mission was to find out what do the local tribesmen, uh, these Pashtuns, uh, who are living under the unblinking eye, the unblinking stare of these drones that fly them all times, what do they think about the Americans hunting and killing Taliban and al-Qaeda in their midst. What I expected to find was what I'd heard, you know, a lot from anti-drone activists, or that it was really generating uh, anti-American sentiment, you know, that women and children and civilians were being killed as innocent bystanders, uh, as collateral damage uh, in this drone blitz. What I found when I got on the ground there was that the majority of the Pashtun tribesmen seemed to realize that the exaggerated numbers provided by the anti-drone activists of civilian deaths were incorrect. And they told me over and over again, the drones are remarkably precise. There are very few innocent women and children who are killed. But it wasn't a perfect campaign. 
no bombing campaign or quote-unquote bombing campaign is even the best missiles, the best trained pilots will make errors, and there were deaths. And when those happened, the Pashtun tribesmen were infuriated. Uh, so there was, you know, it's a nuanced argument. You know, I think it was the best way for Obama to thread the needle and wipe out al-Qaeda in a hostile land where we can't invade, we can't invade Pakistan, without doing a full old-scale invasion or, or, or bombing uh, using, you know, B-52s. Uh, and it, it did succeed in making the mainland safe, or made America safe, and it did wipe out al-Qaeda. Uh, and it did so with a minimal of civilian casualties, but, but yet it wasn't perfect. And sadly... Uh, women and children did die. And we saw last year in August that there was a CIA drone strike in Kabul that killed an innocent family of 10. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Brian Glenn Williams of, uh, of UMass Dartmouth, foreign policy expert. So, Dr. Williams, um, you said that, you know, Obama's drone blitz mostly decimated al-Qaeda except for al-Zawari. Al-Zawari was obviously uh, recently perished by the U.S. government a couple of days ago. So is this the end of al-Qaeda um, as uh, an operable, you know, terrorist organization? No, it isn't. You know, uh, you know, Zawahiri was not particularly charismatic. He, he was no Osama bin Laden, even though he was, in many ways, more influential in creating al-Qaeda, uh, generating the, the, the policies and the thought of his jihad against America uh, than bin Laden. But he, he liked the charisma. And, and you know, al-Qaeda was on the ropes for a long time. You know, they, they lost bin Laden in Operation Neptune, uh, launched by Obama in 2011. Uh, and they lost many of their cadres and top leaders and brightest minds uh, in the drone blitz from 2008 to 2012. Uh, but most importantly, they lost the sort of battle of minds with another uh, Sunni al-Qaeda uh, al spinoff, a group called ISIS, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, right. which rose in Iraq and Syria after our invasion in 2003. So in many ways, our, our invasion of Iraq uh, destroyed Saddam Hussein, who was a, a secular uh, socialist firewall against jihad. Ironically, this generated the group ISIS, which rose in numbers, power, and fame. They're, under they're, name, they uh, were uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, right? And their big battle that, like, I want to say, I don't want to say put them on the map was, was Fallujah, right? Was, is that correct? Right. Yeah. 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 That, that battle of Fallujah really put Zarqawi, uh, who was uh, the ISIS leader, not, not, not here, the Al-Qaeda guy, but it put him on the map. As this guy who was in the front lines fighting, and he was he was cool and and, and young jihadists online, you know, uh, uh, armchair jihadists or online lone wolves, they emulated uh, ISIS and flocked to them. About forty thousand uh, ISIS followers from France, America, Germany, England uh, flocked to Syria and Iraq to create the so-called caliphate, a, a jihadist theocracy, uh, and this group was in opposition to the original uh, mother group, uh, Al-Qaeda Central, led by Zawahiri over in Pakistan. Uh, so, you know, Al-Qaeda Al is the luster faded, uh, ceased getting support, uh, financial support from the Arab Gulf state, and ISIS rose to fame and power and uh, superseded Al-Qaeda. Uh, so it had already lost a lot of its, its clout and global power uh, and replaced by uh, ISIS under, under uh, Zarqawi, uh, even before uh, the death of uh, Zawahiri, who he, 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 he was a plotting guy. I, I listened to his speeches, and they're just endlessly droning, no pun intended, 
um, just not really the guy who, who could really capture the hearts and minds of a new generation of people who are more drawn to ISIS for it. its sickening beheadings, its slaughter and, and rape of an ancient group called the Azidis, they call them pagans, uh, its raping of Christian women and burning of churches and you know, trying to construct an actual state uh, in Syria and Iraq, a state that had oil and, and ruled 10 million people. So ISIS was much more of a, of a success. It had an army of, of 40,000 fighters. Uh, it had oil wells, and it, it was uh, challenging the world. Whereas Zawahiri, especially after you know, 2011, uh, when bin Laden was killed, was hiding in the shadow, shadows and you know, issuing these, these boring fetwas, these decrees. So you know, ISIS still was a much greater threat uh, to the world uh, than al-Qaeda. Uh, but al-Qaeda is still there. You know, they, have, they have a designated leader. Uh, Saif Adel, uh, who's probably hiding in Iran right now. And there may be a chance that Saif Adel uh, takes the helm as emir or commander of what's left of al-Qaeda and does somehow generate uh, some plot uh, somewhere in the West against the West uh, to get revenge uh, for the killing of uh, Zawahiri and his drone strike on Sunday. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Glenn Williams of UMass Dartmouth. So I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit. Uh, this is something that's within your purview. But what's your um, what's your uh, assessment of what's happening right now in Ukraine? The last time we actually spoke was after Putin decided to invade. What, what do you what's your assessment on how that invasion's going? What the U.S. should uh, should do going forward? So you. It's going poorly uh, for Putin. You know, he took a huge gamble on trying to construct his legacy as the guy who annihilated this pro-Western democracy uh, of Ukraine and seamlessly brought it into his, his country in a, a shock and awe style coup d'etat invasion. And it blew up in his face. You know, uh, according to British intelligence, they have lost 20,000 troops at, at the minimum. You know, so they lost 20,000 troops in four months of fighting. Now, compare that to America. Uh, we lost um, uh, 7,500, uh, 4,500 in Iraq and 2,300 in Afghanistan. So we have 6,700 fighters, uh, troops. In two theaters of action, you know, we lost uh, 4,500 in Iraq uh, and 2,200 in 20 years in Afghanistan. Uh, so losing 20,000 troops, as Russians have done, in just four months of fighting is a staggering defeat. Um, this is done in part uh, by the, the stalwart courage of the Ukrainians. You know, compare them standing up to this Russian army of 190,000 men that outnumber them two to one at men level, ten to one other levels. Uh, it comes blitzing in uh, with a navy, uh, strategic bombers, uh, much the greatest tank army in Europe, and the Ukrainians shocked the world and shocked the Russians and shocked the West, Americans, by resisting them and crushing Putin's army in his attempt to capture the capital, Kiev. And the real battle of Ukraine was won in just four days. They came in on February 24th. By, by the end of February, they, they knew they got wiped out uh, trying to take Kiev. And in part, that victory for the Ukrainians was also caused by the Americans and NATO. You know, the Biden administration has pumped billions of dollars of asymmetric weaponry into the Ukrainian hands. Uh, the most famous one, of course, being the, the, the Javelin anti-tank missile, which is used with deadly consequences to wipe out all these tanks at Bravari uh, and other places around Kiev. Uh, the Russians were stunned that their 
their armor columns were being decimated by these armor-piercing javelin U.S.-supplied weapons. Their planes were being shot out of the sky by American-supplied stingers. And we began to get more confident. Now, the Russians weren't 12 feet tall. They weren't like 6 feet tall. And the Ukrainians are getting taller, like 10 feet tall. And slowly the gloves came off. NATO became more confident. Uh, the Biden administration pushed NATO to do more. Uh, and so even the Germans, who once said they'd only give 5,000 helmets to Ukrainians, are giving anti-aircraft tanks, uh, Panzerfaust anti-tank weapons. Uh, the Poles and, and Slovaks are giving uh, now M29 Fulcrum jets. Uh, they're giving uh, long-range S-300 anti-aircraft missiles. Uh, of course, we've seen the Ukrainians sink the flagship of the Russian uh, Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva. Uh, so the game's changing, uh, and the firepower is getting more and more equal as we give uh, Ukrainians these triple uh, seven howitzers, 155 millimeters. Uh, artillery is the god of war, and the Ukrainians always had a disadvantage, but now they're getting more artillery, and they're in this massive, almost like World War II style tank and artillery battles for the fate of eastern Ukraine. Having given up on this coup d'etat attempt, attempt to overthrow Ukraine like, like we did in Iraq uh, with Saddam Hussein, it's a grinding battle uh, of attrition in the Donbass and Luhansk in eastern Ukraine. And Ukrainians seem to have stopped the Russian advances and are, are holding their own. So I think it's all about the U.S. resolve. You know, Canada arsenal democracy, the U.S., continue to pump these billions of dollars of weapon systems into the hands of Ukrainians. We're fighting so heroically and stop the Russians uh, from advancing uh, and seizing even more territory. Uh, so certainly it's blown up in Putin's face. Uh, the sanctions have crippled him. Uh, his economy went from number 11 in the world to number 22 in just two months. Russians are suffering. Uh, they're dying in the thousands. And for what? You know, for nationalism, you know, to get the, this little part of Ukraine. So it's been a strategic blunder on the part of a... Uh, uh, the Russians, or what Donald people. Trump would call a brilliant move, right? A brilliant strategy. Right. Well, yeah, well, when he invaded, <laughs> Trump said, "Oh, Putin's move is brilliant." Yes, uh, you always call Putin his friend. Yeah, uh, you always you always attack Zelensky, mm-hmm. uh, Ukrainian president, calling him corrupt, yeah. as if Putin, uh, the richest man in the world, who has a salary that's in his mind, uh, isn't the most corrupt guy on the planet. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're, we're just lucky, and Ukrainians are lucky that that, that Biden is president right now. Uh, to flow all this money into Ukraine, as opposed to Trump, who would be trying to say, oh, there's good people on both sides. <laughs> yeah. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. Um, so before I let you go, one more question. Uh, it's about Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. I know it's it's a bit out of your, your purview, but I think I'm sure you have an interesting opinion on that. Yeah, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't understand the logic of it. You know, I agree. We need to stand by uh, Taiwan just like we stand by Ukraine. Uh, and ironic how on the right, you have all this, you know, apoplectic seizures about any potential Chinese threat to Taiwan, which is hypothetical. You know, they, they don't only have the real amphibious capacity to launch the People's Army out of China across the Taiwan Straits and evade this, this very well-armed fortress island. So you're saying that uh, they, they couldn't do it if they wanted to? I, I think it's much more unlikely than you think. Okay. Uh, they have the ability to bomb and do terrible damage to the country. But a, a land invasion of Fortress Taiwan, uh, I think, is not in the books. Yeah. Because uh, bom- you hear about it every day on Fox News. Because a bomb would be uh, like yeah. there's no country to to to, yeah. to, to, to govern yeah. over if, if you bombed them, right? Right. 
and, and, and claim their territory. You don't want to wipe it out, especially it's so important. The industry is so important. Um, you know, these uh, circuits and things come from uh, Taiwan. So but I think the timing of Pelosi's trip, it, it, I don't understand it. You know, and of course, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, are rallying minder, you know, because it's macho and it's, it's waving the flag. But, uh, you know, it is needlessly antagonistic. And I think in the big strategic version of the, of the picture, the last thing you want to do right now is antagonize China when, at a time when you don't want them actively supporting Putin in the war in Ukraine. Right. You know, Putin, Putin and the Chinese signed this sort of a peace deal, a, a mutual uh, uh, support agreement uh, in November of last year. And to an extent, China has not really fulfilled its end of the bargain. They're, they're watching with dismay how uh, Putin's being ground down in Ukraine, and they don't want to get sucked into it. But if we do, God forbid, antagonize them, as Pelosi's doing by going to Taiwan, uh, it could push their hand to retaliate and send drones and, and oil and things, uh, support to, not oil, but also the technical support, artillery uh, support, weapons to Russia to help them in the battle uh, in Ukraine. There's this grinding, tectonic battle between the... the unbeatable Ukrainians and the unstoppable Russians. It's interesting you say that because Moscow actually came out with a statement, uh, uh, you know, speaking out against what Speaker Pelosi did uh, visiting Taiwan. So you wonder if that's a show of solidarity, like an invitation to um, to help them. So Yeah, well, you know, I think it makes sense in the part of the Russians to, uh, you know, really focus on this uh, American aggression against Taiwan, as I'll call it, of course, mm-hmm. and to try, uh, you know, getting solidarity uh, with the Chinese uh, against America, because as I said, the Chinese haven't really come through uh, in this agreement uh, they came up with. Um, you know, I think the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and uh, these t- the world's two greatest anti-democratic dictatorships, these authoritarian regimes, you know, are happy uh, standing against the West, against America, against NATO in solidarity. Uh, but so far, China has not really come through uh, the way I thought they might. Uh, but so, so Pelosi's timing uh, is spectacularly bad, and neither party can really condemn it because that'd be considered "quote unquote" un-American. But a lot of people in the foreign policy community that I know in D.C. are cringing uh, as she makes this flag-flying statement uh, in Taiwan at a time when there's bigger strategic issues involved, namely China being sort of kept neutral uh, in this more existential war the faith of our, our brave allies, you know, Vladimir Zelensky and these heroic Ukrainians who are losing 100 soldiers per week in this desperate battle to save their country. And the last thing we need right now is to take our eye off that ball and somehow bring China more decisively into the pro-Russian camp. Dr. Brian Glenn Williams, thank you for joining me. Um, the uh, the book is called Predators: The CIA's Drone War on Al Qaeda. You can go to brianglennwilliams dot com to uh, learn more about Dr. Dr. Glenn Williams' works. I appreciate you joining me, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. Always appreciate it, Marcus. Looking forward to it too. Yeah. Take care. Okay, that was Dr. Brian Glenn Williams. We got to take a break. We'll be right back. This is South Coast tonight. I'm Marcus. Chris is out for the night. 1420 WBS. Marcus, Chris is out. He'll be back later in the week. Uh, we're taking your calls. I'm taking your calls at 508-996-0500. That was Dr. Brian Glenn Williams of UMass Dartmouth. I thought that, that was interesting that he was, um, uh, you know, that he said, um, 
Thank God we have President Biden. Otherwise, the situation in Ukraine might not have gone the way uh, it sh- it would have gone for the people of the Ukraine. And I think that's I think that's fair to say, given Trump's effusive, constant effusive comments uh, about Putin. You know, he, he called this invasion a brilliant move, uh, and in fact. You know, as it was spelled out by Dr. Williams at UMass Dartmouth, Dr. Brian Glenn Williams, that um, it, in fact, was not a brilliant move. <laughs> they went from the 11th uh, to the 22nd uh, strongest economy in the world, right? Um, he's lost a lot of his military capacity. Uh, so, interesting stuff. 508-996-0500 is how you can get uh, on the program um, that was Dr. Brian Glenn Williams of UMass Dartmouth, a foreign policy expert. Uh, I've had him on before. You know, I've had him on when the U.S. decided to um, pull their to uh, to you know withdraw from Iraq, and when the when Putin decided to invade Ukraine. And uh, he's always good to have on when these big international events happen because uh, you know. He's an expert. He's been there. He's lived in Afghanistan. He's lived actually in in Ukraine as well. Uh, I believe speaks Russian. So, um, always an interesting conversation with him, and looking forward to to talking with him again. But we'll be speaking with you five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. I was talking a little bit about this before, but it should have just ended. There was a meet the candidates night for the Tri Town Democratic Party. You had um, Rashawn Hall, who's running for. Plymouth County DA as a Democratic and longtime incumbent Timothy Cruz. I think that's an interesting race for sure. You've got Rashawn Hall's got, I mean, Timothy Cruz has been there a long time, right? So it's obviously when you've got a guy that's been there as long as he's been there, it's always an uphill battle. It's always an uphill battle to take out a, a longtime incumbent. In fact, I, um, I briefly was an unpaid intern for uh, the office of district attorney Cruz in the Wareham district court, uh, my senior year of college, going into my senior year of college, that was unpaid. So I had to drive the ice cream truck around Fall River uh, <laughs> on uh, when I wasn't at the DA's office. But I actually did learn a lot. I actually did learn a lot while I was there. So um, 508-996-0500. Sean Hall's a ACLU lawyer uh, who lives in Plymouth County. He's running for the Plymouth County District Attorney. I think on that reformist um, agenda that a lot of progressive prosecutors have run on. I mean, Rachel Rollins really is the model for uh, Massachusetts on that. Um, She obviously ran... When the seat was open, she ran for uh, Suffolk County DA in Boston and, uh, you know, had a do not prosecute list. And in fact, and in fact, her, you know, during her time as Suffolk County DA, primary dropped precipitously in, uh, in Boston. And you could say, well, yeah, that's, you know, good police work and all that. And that's true. But, you know. I think what it shows is, and I know she got a lot of this, a lot of heat during the, during her U.S. attorney confirmation hearing. They had, they made a big spectacle of it, right? Uh, I think Ed Markey had said this is the first time it hasn't been a voice vote since 2000. This is the first time it hasn't been a voice vote since, uh, like, or not 2000, 1970-something for U.S. attorney. But, you know, you had Tom Cotton up there saying that, you know, Boston is a lawless hellscape because of you know rachel rollins soft on crime philosophy when in fact the crime rate dropped 
I think Rashawn Hall's trying to run on a similar platform and against uh, Tim Cruz. But again, it's a it's a difficult it's difficult to. I think Plymouth County is a fairly conservative region in the state. It's a fairly conservative region in the state. In fact, actually, they um, I remember Politico saying that of all of our members of Congress, none of them are going to lose. They're not all they're all getting reelected, right? But if one of them were to not get reelected, if one of them were to lose to an incumbent, the one most likely to lose would be Congressman Keating because his district is the most conservative out of everybody else. And he represents obviously all of Plymouth County, all of Barnstable County, and most, I don't say most, but at least half of Bristol County. But Plymouth and Barnstable County are really the more conservative areas um, of of Eastern Massachusetts, at least. I really of Massachusetts. I think it's the most conservative area. You know, you, you've got, um, I think actually most of our, Republican reps come from 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 the the Cape and uh, southeastern Massachusetts. But the point I'm trying to make is uh, it's it's an interesting race. And uh, between uh, Mr. Cruz, uh, District Attorney Cruz and and Attorney uh, Rashawn Hall. And there was a there was a uh, town committee. There was a tri-town uh, Dems uh, candidate forum. Rick Trapillo was also there. Rick Trapillo is running for 10th Special District against Bill Strauss. Bill Strauss is the 10th, uh, the rep for the 10th Special District. He is the um, chair of uh, the Transportation Committee in the House. And he's the chair of the Transportation Committee in the House. Uh, I had him on to talk a lot about transportation stuff that's been going on. And obviously, he's was a big part of a lot of the, the conference committee and negotiation stuff that happened uh, last night. Um, on Beacon Hill, uh, Rick Trapil is running in the Democratic primary against him. Um, I to the right, I think of him. I would classify his candidacy as as more to the right of of Rep Strauss. And uh, there, I think it's the first time they're in the same place together. Actually, uh, so I'm interested to see. I didn't see any live streams for it. I'm interested to see how that shakes out. I'm also interested to see how Connor Matthews' fight has shake, shaken out. And I'm going to probably take a break now and check on that. And I'll get back to you. Download the night. I'm Marcus. And you can give me a call at 508-996-0500. Chris will be back later in the week. And, um, you know, I, I said that I was going to get an update on what happened with Connor Matthews. I believe his fight is actually just starting now. Uh, and if you are just tuning in, you're just, I talked about it earlier in the program. Connor Matthews is a Freetown native. I've known him for a long time. I went to high school with his brother, uh, Selectman Trevor Matthews. And he is, uh, uh, Connor is a Air Force uh, Special Forces. So he did a lot of rescue missions. He used to jump out of planes do rescue miss, uh, missions and all of that. And so he is, um, he's fighting uh, for Dana White, basically the Dana White uh, contender series. And he's fighting for a, a UFC contract and that's happening now. So I said I'd give an update on it, but I don't have one yet. And, but I think he's, um, I think he's going to win because he's Connor. Uh, 508-996-0500. Good evening. Hey, Marcus, how are you? Good. Um, before I get into my last question here, and you always, Marcus, you always have great guests on. Um, last guest a little bit over yeah. my head. Um, hey, hey, Barry, I've got a long commercial block. Can you call back in the 9 o'clock hour? Is that is that possible? Oh, yeah. All right, no cool. Problem. 
Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, I've actually got a long commercial break. I'm going to take it now, so we'll be right back. 1420-508-996-0500 saying so in the program where you can message at the WBS on the WBS on hat chat. I would probably call in in the nine o'clock hour though, because we are just nearing the end of this hour. I was joined by most of the uh, of the of the eight o'clock hour by Dr. Brian Glenn Williams of UMass Dartmouth. Uh, if you missed it, you can listen to the podcast later. I think a lot of information there, just talking about you know the technicalities of the drone strike, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, his opinion on some of uh, Biden's maneuvers, Pelosi's um, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and, you know, the impact of uh, the Amin al-Zawari's um, of Amin al-Zawari's death uh, and, you know, the future of, of, you know, what it means basically for Al Qaeda. I don't have an update for you on, on, on the Connor Matthews fight. You know, it's it's still going on. We're we're rooting for Connor here. And we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But I'll see you guys on the other cl- the other side of the nine o'clock hour. There's going to be a lot to talk about locally, nationally, etc. So give me a call then, uh, and I'll yeah, I'll talk to you. So.